0: In the lead up to learning how to compete in academic debate, my students will frequently test out their methods and techniques on harmless topics. Basic questions are posed, such as dogs or cats. Personally, I come down on the dog side, particularly with the first of my children being Lily the Pug. You might assume then that I choose dogs purely because the Pug is such a majestic and regal creature. After all, the Snorting Critter was originally the companion of the Chinese Emperors, the longest continuous civilization in the world. They are fierce beyond just smelling up the joint, a point illustrated by Josephine's pet pug named Fortune, who was the first one strong enough to resist Napoleon, biting him right on the rump when he marshaled his forces without first obtaining his wife's permission to march against her sovereign ground. The debate of dogs versus cats is more of a default position for me, as my wife won't let a kitty cat near my home, despite my daughter's personal pleas. Although she won't engage on an academic discussion regarding my desire to add a feline to the family, she would agree with a Vox article which brings scientists into the debate. Their findings indicate that cats show genuine affection far less often than you might think. They amount to an environmental disaster, and a parasite in their feces can subtly change one's personality over a long period of time, increasing the odds of becoming neurotic or developing schizophrenia. Despite these academic arguments, I would still be willing to open up my home to a sweet purring kitten. But it turns out the most dictators won it. Historians have noticed that dictators far prefer dogs over cats, speculating that the dog's habit of absolute obedience is the reason behind why so many psychopaths have had such loving relationship with man's supposed best friend. Hitler had his German Shepherd Blondie. The breed of Rat Terrier was affectionately known throughout Russia as Stalin's dog. Kim Jong-il treated his puppies as royalty, while his son made Western breeds the centerpiece of North Korea's only zoo. Meanwhile, Turkmenistan's current totalitarian ruler has recently unveiled a 19-foot-tall golden statue of the nation's national dog breed. He has been known to gift puppies to leaders he approves of including bequeathing a pup named Verney to Russia's current dog-loving president-slash-dictator, Vladimir Putin. The Financial Times weighs in on the thought that pro-democracy leaders such as Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln tended to have a preference for cats because their nature is one of independent, free spirits. So where does Vladimir Lenin fit into this? Lenin was an unashamed lover of cats, breaking the scientific norm. Was Lenin secretly then a believer in free thought? No, of course not. He must have just liked the way they arched their back while rubbing up against your legs. He may have written ten million words in his lifetime, yet none of his known works either explain his preference in pets, or oddly enough, what his cats' names were. Still, we can admire some of the traits that he had in common with ferocious felines. Such as their unrelenting focus on whatever idea is in their head. Seriously, once a cat has its mind made up, there is nothing that can be done to redirect them. On April 16, 1917, Vladimir Lenin arrived home to Russia after more than 10 years in Europe. The Tsar had just officially abdicated the throne, and a provisional government has risen in power. In less than one year, Lenin will have taken over the entirety of the country, including the hard-to-reach top of the cabinets that you never quite understood how they were able to reach them. You know, such as Siberia. Yep, you guessed it. I'm keeping the cat theme the whole way through. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the fourth and final episode in a series about the life and legacy of Vladimir Lenin. Lenin, the cat lover. Similar to the Weimar Republic during the interwar years, the Russian provisional government may have been doomed from the very beginning. The people supported change. After all, the Tsar had bungled World War I and outlawed the sale of vodka. But the new government was never able to make enough of a down payment to buy them the time needed to succeed. Internally, they were of the mindset to continue the disastrous war against Germany as well as refusing to redistribute land holdings, one of the major sources of Russian inequality. Externally, Lenin was giving hour-long speeches aimed directly at taking down the provisional government. Upon arriving back to the territory of his motherland, he told all whom would listen that peasants should take it upon themselves to seize land in the countryside, Armed workers should patrol the streets and met out revolutionary justice against the exploiting class, and Russian troops should bring about peace by fraternizing with German soldiers at the front. His mind was made up before ever meeting those who replaced the Romanov dynasty, hammering the necessity of a socialist revolution into the heads of those who came to hear him speak, telling them that we don't need a bourgeoisie democracy. We don't need a parliamentary republic. We don't need any government except by the Soviets of the workers, soldiers, and peasant deputies. My friends who love their cats point out how wonderful it is that they go to the bathroom within their own litter box conveniently located within the house. To this I respond in the same way that the other Bolsheviks did to Lenin's demands for an immediate revolt against the government. In the words of Pavel Lebedved, who amounted to a Bolshevik conscientious objector, quote, What you have been saying sounds like the ravings of a madman. The March Revolution played on the misplaced hope that Russia's problems in World War I were primarily caused by the incompetence of Nicholas and his court. Lenin was urging no compromise with the provisional government, as well as other extreme measures such as abolishing the police and civil service, as well as nationalizing the banks and all major corporations. He was waging total war from inside of Russia. It was his intuition that everything had to be destroyed, before it could be rebuilt under socialism. His ideas were so insane that the government referred to him as a lost man, an individual whose ideas were so radical that he wasn't deemed deserving of the title dangerous. Thus, they allowed him to continue his public ravings. They were mistaken in their belief that they could arrest him at any time and were most focused on turning the tide of World War I to their favor. They opened the floodgates of freedom at home, removing all censorship, and turned their focus to the front. Fan fiction began to overrun Russia. The newly uncensored book titled Night Orgies of Rasputin became an overnight instant bestseller. Imperial statues were toppled and palaces were looted leading some to believe that these inter-revolutionary years were a struggle of culture against anarchy, one that risked ushering in a new dark age of barbaric chaos. While he didn't encourage the destruction, Lenin soaked it up, convinced that the people's desire for revenge and destruction would eventually pave the path to power for his Bolsheviks. Within this chaotic world, Lenin operated as a populist, promising the people simple solutions to complex problems, such as thinking that buying a cat would solve all of your problems. Actually, that might be the case as the BBC reveals that a cat's purr actually matches the same pulsing rates that human therapeutics produce in order to stimulate natural healing properties, although the cat's purr only works to heal itself. The research shows that cat ownership cuts the risk of heart disease and a stroke by a third. Too amazing to sound true? Easy solutions oftentimes are too good to be true. Lenin's speeches were littered with lies, many of which were obvious and easy to prove. He delivered daily lectures and wrote incessantly for Pravda during this time. Poking and prodding for weaknesses within a ruling regime which seemed to aimlessly drift from crisis to crisis. Within less than nine months, the government experienced four different ruling coalitions and seven major cabinet reshuffles. This is one of the reasons that historians just refer to it as the provisional government. It never established a clear identity. Inflation and crime were rising and the government rashly resorted to printing so much money that bank customers were handed scissors when they ordered a withdrawal from their accounts. The customer had to cut out the newly printed banknotes themselves in order to keep up with supply. Fears are oftentimes universal. For instance, we all fear a lack of money, or inflation that eats away at our bank account. So many people fear cats that that particular fear has its own category, allureophobia, and I'm pretty sure that my grandmother as well as my mother have undiagnosed cases of it. It turns out that a number of historical figures had a fear of cats, including right-wing dictators Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler as well as famous conquerors such as Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, and Napoleon. Oddly enough, cats hate to be stared at, and thus are naturally inclined to search out individuals who fear them so much that they can't stand to look at them. The biggest fear for those holding the reins of power in Russia at this moment was another army mutiny, which would be the government's undoing. For this reason, they handed control of everyday decisions to the people, in the form of the Trotsky-led Petrograd Soviet. Leon Trotsky had returned to the fold of the Bolsheviks after he recognized that Lenin was more likely to achieve success than the Mensheviks. Their first ruling, titled Order Number One, made soldiers into citizens, not subject to martial laws. The intention behind the law was to sever ties that bound the military to the government. One politician read the ruling in utter disbelief, telling all who would listen that this would be the end of the army. Soon all discipline faded away, and soldiers, who like dogs naturally look for order, found their way in mass to the Bolsheviks the only group in Russia which was promising to swiftly end the war, a war which was killing an unfathomable number of their kind. Lenin's lunacy was beginning to pay dividends. The individuals that joined up had no clue what Leninism or even Marxism entailed, but they understood suffering. Spontaneous marches on manners began, first by distraught soldiers, and then throughout lawless Russia as serfs began to take by force what they believed to be theirs by right. One can imagine the internal purr that Vladimir must have let out, as his lifelong ambition seemed to edge closer to reality. an all-Russian Congress of Soviets met in June to discuss the mounting problems. It was here that Lenin loudly proclaimed that the Bolsheviks were the only political party with a program to deal with the economic crisis that engulfed the country. It began with the ending of World War I. Here he melded the war and his socialist agenda together, stating that the provisional government is made up of capitalists with 800% war profits walking around the country just as before. He demanded that they publish the figures of their profits and arrest some 50 of them and keep them locked up for a bit, even if you keep them under the same luxurious conditions as you keep Nicholas Romanov. Lenin gained some momentum at this point, murmuring that you talk about peace without annexations and contributions. Put that into practice in our own country. You talk to us about an advance on the front. We are not against war in principle. We are only against a capitalist war for capitalist ends, and until the entire government and the bourgeoisie is ousted, your type of socialists are the mere trolls of those who have brought this disaster upon the world. The government tried to change, but it amounted to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It was too little, too late. The Bolshevik numbers swelled from 23,000 members in March to 200,000 in July. The growth was predicated on Lenin's performances, his articles in Pravada, which were being secretly bankrolled by the Germans, and the incompetence of his opponents. The fatal blow came on the third day of a massive summer offensive designed to drive the Germans and Austrians out of Ukraine. After the Germans broke the lines, Russians turned on their officers, killing hundreds of them before fleeing in utter panic. The Bolsheviks seized the opportunity to advance their efforts at home, with Lenin writing to Trotsky on July 4th, This is when they are going to shoot us. It would be the most advantageous time for them. Their constant probing resulted in the July days. Violent street demonstrations that included sections of Petrograd occupied by mutinied military units. The Bolshevik leaders were forced underground, and arrest orders finally went out. Amazingly, however, the police still didn't have a clear description of what Lenin looked like. The closest that they came to him was arresting his brother-in-law. Keep in mind that unless you're a member of the Habsburg, your in-laws through marriage typically don't look too much like you. Pravda Pravada was raided and ransacked. Failing to capture him, they attempted to destroy his reputation by unearthing the true story that he was in the pay of the Germans. They didn't stop there though, as they spread the false tale that he had previously served as an Okhrana agent. Additional propaganda by the state included details regarding supposedly decadent Bolshevik orgies. One wonders if the more insulting part of that tale was the idea that the deviant acts were done in a decadent fashion. A 200,000 ruble price was placed on his capture. The assault on his character only grew stronger after he appeared to abandon the cause in fleeing to Finland. Cats get the reputation of being lazy, but if you were to ask them, I bet you that they claim to be incredibly productive, as if trying to murder the family's pet goldfish is a good use of one's time each and every single day. During the next two months, which happened to be the months in which the Bolsheviks would take over, Lenin fished for carp between sessions writing his book, The State and Revolution, which sought to describe the ideal society that he hoped to build. This work, more than any other of Lenin's, was purposefully filled with lies particularly the one about Lenin's claim that the state would cease to exist once Russia was governed fully by the principles of communism. As his lieutenants risked their lives to carry on the fight against the provisional government, Lenin wrote instructions from afar. One of Lenin's cleverest moves during this time was to save the provisional government from an internal coup who sought to bring back the monarchy. That's right, Lenin aided the government at what was perhaps their lowest moment. But remember that just because you share a home with your cat, and lovingly take care of it, that cat will still turn on you. Take into account that if you die within your home, your house cat will take to feasting on you once their bowl stops being refilled. Doctors have found that cats like to start by eating your face first but that pales in comparison to the domesticated hamster. Given a lack of food and the opportunity, they will burrow in and begin to live within your carcass while they consume it. In saving the provisional government, the Bolsheviks were acting like a hamster, able to score dual political victories. By coming to the aid of an unpopular government which had vilified them, The people were shown that the Bolsheviks were in actuality the good guys, saving someone who wouldn't have reciprocated if the tables had been turned. Additionally, the sitting government lost all of its allies from the right after receiving crucial help from the far left. They parlayed the political capital that they had earned into a small majority within the Petrograd and Moscow Soviets. Their slogans of bread, peace, and land were swelling their ranks with supporters. One of the strays that I have managed to befriend was named Kitty Purr by my daughter when she was four years old. Kitty Purr was a fantastic guest, except for the fact that she randomly killed birds. She didn't eat them. Nor were they bothering her, she just seemed to like killing birds for the sheer joy of it. I realized too late the mistake of befriending a creature that shares 95.6% of their genetic makeup with tigers when I arrived outside one day to the gift of a dead cardinal at my doorstep. I was able to clean up the murder a mere minute before my daughter was up and playing outside with her cat. Most of the Bolsheviks believed that their rule was a matter of fait accompli. Again, however, Lenin reigned on their parade, telling them in a letter that it would be naive to wait for a formal majority to begin their rule. No revolution ever waits for that, he told them. History will never forgive us if we do not take power now. The rest of the Bolsheviks quickly agreed to burn the letter in order to continue building a majority in order to win democratic elections fairly and freely. Realizing that his colleagues weren't in agreement with him, he demanded transportation to bring him back from Finland, but the ruling council refused, falsely telling their leader that his safety was too important to risk. He came anyways, arriving on October 7th disguised as a Lutheran pastor from Finland. He was still in that disguise at 10pm on October 10th at the meeting that officially began the October Revolution. It took seven and a half hours for Vladimir to convince his inner circle that now was the proper time to pounce. Trotsky and others were convinced that merely waiting a little longer would earn them a legitimate political victory. It was a reasonable course of action. If they were to seize power and fail, they would be shot as traitors. Those that remained in disagreement with the decision decided to go public with their opposition to the plan, publishing the details of Lenin's planned coup within the pages of the next day's papers. Thus, everyone, including the government, knew what was coming. Lenin's instinct, much like Kitty purrs was to attack even though he probably didn't need to. Faced with the coming clash, the head of government wrote confidently to the British ambassador, all I want them to do is act, then I will crush them. His overconfidence was the final nail in the provisional government's coffin. The victory was not impeccably organized. Lenin began the evening of October 25th in a safe house. He had to travel two plus hours in disguise in order to reach Trotsky, who was overseeing the evening's operations. At one point, the train conductor asked Lenin if he had ever heard of this Lenin fellow. The plan was to isolate the government, seizing its main buildings and cutting it off from outside aid. Despite knowing that it was coming, the provisional government had no allies left in the city, and Kurnitsky, the head of the doomed government, was forced to borrow a car from the American embassy in order to flee for the Winter Palace. It was here that he would make the last stand against the Bolsheviks. The revolution was more like the changing of the guard, rather than an insurrection. Historian Victor Sebastian gives us a timeline for the rest of the revolution. At 6 a.m., the state bank fell. An hour later, the central telephone exchange, the main post office, and the telegraph building. By 8 a.m., the rebels had taken all of the railway stations. There were no casualties. In theory, Sebastian writes, the government could call on the city's garrison troops numbering some 35,000, but as Trotsky had predicted, even if the majority of the soldiers were not actively siding with the Bolsheviks, they weren't prepared to fight them either. The storming of the Winter Palace was the worst of the limited fighting. The venerable state institution had 1,500 different rooms protected by two companies of Cossacks, 220 officer cadets, a city garrison bicycle squad, and 200 women from the awesomely named Shock Battalion of Death. The five field guns at the fortress were not quite as scary as the women. They turned out to be museum pieces without sights or the right size shells. At 3 p.m., Lenin prematurely declared victory, an event that Sebastian refers to as the first big lie of the Soviet regime. The key to the eventual victory was the fact that two warships had joined the Bolshevik cause. As they aimed their guns in anticipation of the 7.10pm ultimatum for surrender, the provisional government was sitting down for what they assumed was their last meal. It was made up of borscht, steamed fish, and artichokes. The Cossacks, the best soldiers among the ragtag bunch, deserted ahead of the shelling, of which only two of the thirty six shells hit the towering palace. By 2 a.m., the government had been placed under arrest and the looting of the palace had begun. As massive of an event as it was, Sebastian tells us that most people in Petrograd did not know a revolution was happening. The banks and shops had been open all day. The trams were running. All the factories were operating as usual. The workers had no clue that Lenin was about to liberate them from capitalist exploitation. The shocking nature of the takeover stunned the other socialist groups in Russia, most of whom agreed to have nothing to do with what they perceived as a criminal takeover. They walked out of the Congress in disgust. It was a massive mistake, as one of Lenin's opponents realized, stating that by leaving the Congress we gave them a monopoly on the Soviets. Our own irrational decisions ensured Lenin's victory. It was a victory that Lenin claimed had been as easy as picking up a feather. Few believed that the Bolsheviks would fare any better than the regime that they had replaced. Russia was still filled with problems, but in this case it truly was Lenin and Lenin alone who had the solution. Russia had to exit World War I, and they had to do it quickly. Lenin was determined to not let power slip from his fingers, and from the very beginning ruled with an iron fist. Actually, first he took a three-hour nap. Then he ruled with an iron fist, one of his commanders had overturned the use of firing squads for capital punishment while Vladimir had slumbered. Lenin immediately reversed the order, stating how stupid. This would be a serious mistake, an unpardonable weakness. How can you have a revolution without firing squads? If you believe that we can win without executions, you are under a naive delusion. He then proceeded to immediately censor the press and opposition newspapers, stating that the bourgeoisie press is a weapon no less dangerous than bombs or guns aimed at us. Why should we place it in the people's hands? He reacted to continued worker strikes as acts of sabotage and proclaimed them as nothing less than blackmail. With the threat of military action amplifying his command, he ordered the proletariat back to work. Liberation of the urban working class was merely a slogan. Having taken only one Russian city, the newly nationalized banks weren't ready yet to accede to their demands. Thus, one day after the revolution had commenced, the Bolsheviks once again robbed a bank. This time, it was their own national bank that they broke into. Five million rubles disappeared into Bolshevik sacks. Lenin oversaw it all. Nightly meetings began at 5 p.m. and lasted for seven hours without significant breaks. He put in a system of financial penalty for arriving late, and rigidly limited speakers to 15 minutes. It was during these meetings that individuals were assigned to posts without any meaningful reason. The director of the state bank was appointed to his position merely because he had taken a finance class years ago when he was a student in London. For all of Lenin's work to bring about a revolution, he hadn't done much diligence in planning for the day after. Decrees began flooding forth from the nightly meetings. Workers were limited to an eight-hour workday. Women were granted equal rights in work, marriage, and over family property. Freedom of religion was instituted, although Lenin would work hard to destroy organized religion in Russia a few years later. One of his most detailed decrees that he issued regarded the operations of libraries. A secret decree set up the Cheka, the successor to the Okhrana, and the precursor to the KGB. Lenin was setting up both a sword and shield to protect his infant regime. The new Secret Service spy agency answered only to Lenin and killed at least 1,000 individuals over the course of their first year in action. Having the tools to stifle dissent at home, he next looked to restore the nation in order to quell the Russian people's dissatisfaction with his seizure of power. He initially called on every state to cease the war, but was met with ridicule from all sides. They took him more seriously when he published secret treaties signed by Nicholas, which showed a carved-up Middle East controlled by the Allied powers. It had been negotiated before the war had begun. Russia had been designated to get Constantinople. Failing to find a utopian solution, he then sued for a separate peace with Germany at Brest-Litovsk, a city on the Belarus border with Poland. The Germans and their allies sent their top diplomatic negotiators, The Russians sent a consortium of differing social classes. German General Max Hoffman describes the rabble that was sent to secure peace by saying, I shall never forget that first dinner with the Russians. I sat between Adolf Jaffe, a former assassin, and Grigory Stoklnach, an editor of Pravada. Opposite me sat a worker who was obviously amazed by the large amount of silverware on the table. He tried to catch this and that on his plate with various bits of cutlery, but he used the fork exclusively for the purpose of cleaning his teeth. Directly opposite me sat Madame Vesentko, and directly opposite her a peasant, Roman Stashkov, a thorough Russian phenomenon with long gray locks and a huge beard. The orderly couldn't hide a smile, when he asked Dashkov whether he wanted red or white wine with one course. Which is the stronger, he asked. After the group failed to secure Lenin's initial offer, he pulled out his ace in the hole and sent Leon Trotsky in with the expressed purpose to stall until Germany was in a weak enough position that they would become obligated to accept the original Russian offer. At worst, each day spent stringing out the talks would be another day that Russians weren't dying by the tens of thousands in the field. Sebastian speaks to us about the changes that Lenin's right-hand man brought to the festivities, revealing that Trotsky went in, and master of blather as he was, talked endlessly. For one whole day, he gave a long lecture to the assorted German and Austrian diplomats on the first volume of Marx's book, Capital. On another, he went through every clause in a potential treaty in both German and Russian, insisting upon two separate interpreters, doubling the time involved. The Germans were getting bored and suspicious though the elaborate dinners and social events continued unabated. Trotsky reported at one point in mid-December that he thought time might be running out at the talks, and in a postscript asked Lenin whether he should wear evening dress at one of the receptions. Lenin responded that Trotsky ought to go in a petticoat if you want, only get us peace. The deal that the Germans were offering was good enough for Lenin, but no one else, as it meant that Russia would have to give up all of Poland, Lithuania, Korlin, and most of western Ukraine. Only Stalin and one other leading Bolshevik member supported him as Lenin ranted that the Russian army was zero as a fighting force. It barely exists. We might not last more than a few days. He told them that he was prepared to yield territory to the present victor to gain time, obtaining breathing space. That's what this is all about, and only that. Signing a treaty in defeat is a way of gathering strength. The preservation of the Soviet Republic stands above all else. Trotsky agreed with the principle, but tried to stall one more time, this time returning to the negotiations and accepting the concept of the treaty while not actually signing it. He called his plan neither war nor peace. It only took two days for the Germans to lose whatever patience they still had with Trotsky, telling him on February 9th that if the treaty weren't signed by the next day, the Germans would invade Russia. Upon hearing this, Trotsky stated for the record that Russia was conceding that they had lost the war, but would not participate in signing a treaty. The Germans sat in stunned silence. It is likely that there was neither a strong enough white or red wine for them at that particular moment. Still, it took them a week to react, upon which they resumed hostilities and a week after that, Lenin was forced to agree to actually signing a document. Within those two fateful weeks, the Germans captured more territory than in the previous three years of the war. In addition to the earlier terms, Lenin now had to accept a deal that he used words such as partition, enslavement, and humiliation when describing it. His delay tactics had succeeded in Russia losing control of the Baltic states, Finland, and nearly all of Ukraine. 62 million of Russia's people, 32% of its agricultural land, 54% of its industry, and 89% of its coal mines immediately ceased to exist. Trotsky resigned his position to avoid putting his signature on the document, Four others also staunchly refused, including Lenin himself, who decided to find a fall guy. Having fulfilled his first promise to end the war, Lenin sought to next legitimize his government by allowing elections for the formation of a constitutional assembly. He had previously postponed the elections, but now saw them as an opportunity for him to receive the People's Mandate. After winning only 24% of the vote, however, he quickly retreated to his authoritarian nature. On the day that the Assembly was scheduled to meet, he banned a right-wing party, arresting their leaders and cancelling the opening of the Assembly. Then, two months later, he allowed the Assembly to meet, but only under the watchful eyes of troops that had been moved into the city to enforce a strict martial law order. Despite the military presence, 40,000 workers, students, and civil servants marched towards the Duma with a banner that read, All Power to the Assembly. Red guards opened fire from the rooftops, resulting in 10 killed and at least 70 seriously wounded. Despite the violence happening outside of their walls, the assembly managed to meet from 4 p.m. till 4 a.m., at which point Lenin ordered an adjournment and the permanent locking of the doors. Democracy had survived for 12 hours beneath Lenin, who had this to say about the experiment. The people wanted to convene the assembly, so we convened it, But the people at once sensed that this assembly represented a return to the past, so now we have carried out the will of the people. While history doesn't yet recognize Lenin as a full-fledged dictator at this point, Vladimir makes it clear that he always intended to rule with absolute authority, telling the world that political life as a whole is an endless chain, consisting of an infinite number of links. The whole art of politics lies in finding and taking as firm a grip as we can of the link that is least likely to be struck from our hands, the one that is most important at the given moment, the one that most of all guarantees its possessor the possession of the whole chain. As has been the case with all communist takeovers, even the ones that claim to be peaceful, Property and power changed hands. Sebastian tells us the beginning in December of 1917, the rich were branded former people, awarded far lower rations, and were placed at the back of the queues for bread. Some scions of great aristocratic families starved to death. Middle-class families were made to share their homes with the poor, and often ended up with the smaller rooms in a larger apartment. A revolution in domestic life, a new world where the servants and masters literally changed places. Those that didn't accept their new place in the hierarchy faced the first show trials in Lenin's new people's courts which amounted to ad hoc mob trials in which twelve elected judges doled out justice. The judges weren't necessarily qualified, and most couldn't read. Their primary qualifications were loyalty to the state. Once the predetermined verdict was read out loud, the guards proceeded to shoot the enemy agents, profiteers, marauders, hooligans, and counter-revolutionary agitators on the spot. The dead men's land was then redistributed, with the best parts being retained for state use. One Bolshevik jokingly asked Lenin why bother with a commiserate of justice at all, suggesting that they call it the commiserate for social extermination and just be done with it. Unable to detect the sarcasm, Lenin's face lit up, saying, Well put, that's exactly what it should be, but we can't say that. Thus, the second Bolshevik promise of land was achieved. Bread was the final campaign promise for the Bolsheviks. It proved to be the most difficult. Trotsky believed in the idea of permanent revolution, and Lenin adopted it in order to justify the presence of a permanent vanguard government. But that meant that he needed an enemy. Cats are oftentimes chosen to be the villains of stories. You thought that I had forgotten, didn't you? It turns out that Kitty Purr wasn't the only one randomly pouncing on birds. According to the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, which conducted a systematic review, they found that America's cats, including your sweet pet, killed between 1.4 billion and 3.7 billion birds, as well as 6.9 billion to 20.7 billion mammals annually, exceeding death totals caused by human-made habitat destruction and vehicular mammal slaughter combined. Lenin wasn't about to turn on his pet cats, though, and with all the capitalists still ignoring his regime while fighting World War I, Lenin decided to invent his next foe. He referred to them as kulaks. Kulaks, an invented term, were rich capitalistic peasants in Russia whom Lenin claimed were hoarding grain, preventing the people from thriving. The word literally meant fist, as in tight-fisted people. Thus, the connection to wartime profiteers was an easy one to make. Although Stalin would finish off the Kulaks, Lenin began their oppression, coercing, bullying, and terrorizing them into obedience. Lenin's initial economic ideas were more horrific than the CGI used for the live-action Cats movie, and that's pretty horrific. Inflation was wrecking havoc on the economy, Rubles in circulation had risen from $60 billion to $225 billion a year into the revolution. The staff at the Russian Mint had to be increased from 3000 to $13,000 in order to facilitate the printing of more funds. Lenin had an outside-of-the-box solution to the inflation problem. He simply ceased the use of money in Russia. Workers were paid in product rather than in cash. And when the workers responded poorly to the lack of financial incentives by not producing enough grain to meet his demands, Lenin blamed Kulaks, and set out requisition teams to find the hidden scraps. Again, he likely would have preferred the term social extermination squad. In 1918, he launched the so-called battle for grain, with dehumanizing language that the, quote, Kulaks are the rabid foes of the Soviet government. These bloodsuckers have grown rich on the hunger of the people. These spiders have grown fat out of the workers. These leeches have sucked the blood of the working people and grown richer as the workers in the city have starved. Ruthless war on the kulaks, death to all of them, he proclaimed. Brigades made up of 75 armed men traveled to 20,000 villages over the first two months of the campaign. Each group carried with them at least two machine guns. The brigades presented the feel of a medieval Inquisition team, with them hanging around the village torturing residents until they finally got around to asking about the amount of grain which had been provided. The countryside immediately turned against the Bolsheviks. But Lenin doubled down, ordering at least 100 Kulaks hung, their names published, and the identification of hostages before the team moved to the next village. When officers balked at the order, Lenin told his lieutenants to find tougher people. One leader that dithered at the idea of taking hostages asked for clarification as how to do so. Lenin replied with just one word, energetically. Not even Stalin, the so-called Kremlin Highlander, was deemed tough enough for Lenin during the Battle of Grain. 570,000 tons of grain were added to the coffers as a result of the war. That is, 570,000 tons added to their normal hull of 49 million tons. That is an increase of 0.1%. Rebellion broke out, which Trotsky put down mercilessly. A far more serious uprising began in 1918, in what became known as the Russian Civil War, or period of Red-White Terror. Groups that opposed the Bolsheviks rose up and formed armies, but they were only united in opposition to Lenin. In other words, they were fighting against Lenin rather than fighting for something. His enemies consisted of three separate armies. One sought the return of Nicholas II, one thought that Russia had a democratic future, and one just hated Jewish people. Lenin was suddenly thrust into the role of a war leader, pouring over maps and dictating orders from afar. Trotsky, another novice at war, was raised up to a general and tasked with bringing the rebellion to a heel. Trotsky was brilliant in forming and training an army. He used lessons from the Battle of Grain to conscript soldiers by identifying their family members as hostages. For this reason, only individuals with relatives living in Russia were forcibly recruited. His Special Order number 30 detailed that soldiers who didn't follow orders are at the same time betraying their own fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, wives, and children. It was during the outbreak of the war that Lenin finally ordered the killing of the Tsar and his family. They were led into the basement by their guards under the false pretext of an attacker breaching the outer walls of their estate. Upon the family's arrival to a windowless and chairless basement room, guards appeared and read off the charges against the Tsar, after which they opened fire indiscriminately, causing many of the family members to die in slow agony. Nicholas and his family would have likely been far better off if he had never abdicated the throne for the good of Russia. Trotsky zipped from the three separate fronts via a specially designed train that was equipped with its own printing press, telegraph machine, a film crew, and its own orchestra. The rebelling Whites also conscripted local soldiers against their will, but were less effective at keeping them in line. Perhaps it was their lack of machine guns. The three armies never managed to unite, despite millions of dollars in aid coming from the French, British, and American governments. It was during this conflict that the personal war between Trotsky and Stalin began. Stalin remained overseeing the battle for grain in the region of Tsarsin. Stalin ignored Trotsky's orders and proceeded in a half hearted attempt to get his rival sacked. In return, Trotsky let the cat out of the bag regarding Stalin illegally drinking from the Tsar's old wine cellars. Although it was a mistake that Trotsky would ultimately pay for with his life, Lenin's tactic was to play the two men off of each other rather than bringing them together. In this particular instance, Stalin smoothed things over by opening the door to a ceasefire by asking, how can we get along without a bit of wine? The Civil War ended when the Western allies of the whites withdrew their financial resources from what had clearly become a losing cause. 300,000 Russians were killed in the conflict that spanned portions of three years. Another 450,000 likely died due to the wartime spread of disease, something that feline friends regularly spread to their human companions. Both sides utilized terror tactics, including Lenin ordering poison gas to be used to clear out forest outposts. During the Red Terror, as it came to be called, the Cheka executed between 12,000 and 50,000 individuals. Some historians suggest that the true number may be north of one million. The simultaneous white terror killed another 300,000, in addition to at least 100,000 Jews that were murdered by the white army in Ukraine. Lenin's utilitarian actions in the name of the Socialist Revolution hadn't made him very popular and he was nearly killed by an assassin after declaring to an audience that the vanguard government was prepared to, quote, apply the model of the French Revolution against soldiers who failed to display the proper amount of strength and vigor on the battlefield. The would-be killer was Fanny Kaplan, a 28-year-old daughter of a schoolteacher. She managed to shoot the despot twice, in the arm and chest. Upon reaching the Kremlin, Lenin initially refused medical attention, claiming that I've been shot and slightly wounded, just in the arm. Doctors intervened and discovered that while one bullet remained in his left arm, the other had gone through his neck, missing his aorta by a fraction of a centimeter. After piercing his lung, it remained lodged in his neck. They cleaned the wounds, patched him up, and decided to leave the bullets within his body. The gunman's rationale was simple. She regarded Comrade Lenin as a traitor, telling police that the longer he lives, the further he'll push back the idea of socialism, for dozens of years, perhaps. In actuality, Lenin only had five and a half years left, but he didn't know that yet. Fanny Kaplan was a believer in socialism, so much so that she recognized Lenin's lies quicker than most. No good deed goes unpunished, and the assassination attempt became the rationale for the Cheka to launch the previously mentioned Red Terror that ran in conjunction with the Civil War. The near death of their revolutionary leader had two effects. First, it allowed the state to suppress stories regarding the violence of the Civil War. This includes a group of off-duty Czech officers who drunkenly went on stage during the famous Russian clown act of Bim-Bom. The popular duo had brought their act across Europe and even appeared in a number of early silent films. In addition to a traditional clown act, Bim and Baum enjoyed parsing out the Russian language in order to receive laughs. After the Bolshevik revolution was complete, the two looked at framed pictures of Trotsky and Lenin before Bim asked what he wanted to do with them. Baum replied that he intended to hang one of them and put the other against the wall. The audience thought the stumbling Cheka agents were part of the act, until one officer pulled their handgun and shot Bomb dead. Despite the public and sinister nature of shooting a clown on stage, there were no repercussions. The second effect of Fanny's attack was the creation of the Lenin Cult. Widely regarded as one of the first 20th-century authoritarian personality cults, papers began to compare Lenin to Jesus Christ. Orthodox priests, who would soon be put out of business by Lenin, referred to him in the same manner that they had to the Tsars, deeming him ruler by the grace of God. Newspapers now wrote about Lenin, rather than carrying stories by him. Oftentimes the first time. They transmitted heroic stories that painted their leader in the best possible light. The cult only grew when Lenin returned to work with his arm in a sling, just three weeks after his near-death experience. One of Lenin's oldest comrades revealed that the attempt to kill Lenin has made him much more popular than he was. One hears people who are far from having any sympathy with the Bolsheviks, saying that it would have been a disaster if he had succumbed to his wounds. In the midst of all of this chaos and confusion, he is the backbone of the new body Pollock, the main support on which all rests. Although he wasn't showing any signs of slowing down, Lenin responded to the attempt on his life as if he knew that his remaining time on earth was running out. He spent 17 hours at work each day, only returning home to his apartment for lunch and sleep. During those hours, a corrupt bureaucracy developed right under his nose. Party members threw lavish seven-course meals filled with drinks and hired girls. No doubt that Lenin hated his peers' actions. During the Civil War, he had ordered his men to, quote, organize mass terror, shoot, and deport the hundreds of prostitutes who are making drunkards of the soldiers, former officers, and the like. Except Lenin didn't witness the indiscretions of his colleagues. They took over the best palaces for their housing. Lenin stayed in a modest two-room apartment which he shared with his sister. His insane work schedule didn't include any time for socialization. It truly was all work and no play, unless you count signing death orders as play, which Lenin probably did. His one privilege was the hiring of a talented personal cook, Spiridon Putin, the grandfather of Russia's current dictator Vladimir Putin. His modesty in the face of the lavish lifestyles of his comrades soon became part of the Lenin cult, serving to set him apart from the others, placing him on a pedestal that no other individual could rise to. The communists had created a privileged caste, removing themselves from the people they claimed to serve. It may seem small, but one of the clearest signs of their privilege was the fact that Bolshevik party members received their own restaurant that provided top-notch meals at a time where most of Russia was starving. And I literally mean starving. Lenin showed the world, not that Mao was paying attention, what happens when you apply the fundamental principles of communism to farming. Russia experienced the Great Volga Famine in 1921. It was caused by natural and man-made effects. Farmers had just come to the realization that they wouldn't receive any extra benefits for working harder and producing more food. It is from these moments that the Russian saying of they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work is born. The government had unknowingly incentivized Russia's farmers to shift to subsistence farming. World War I and the Russian Civil War had taken too many workers from their farms and dragged too many nutrients from the soil. When nature caused a poor harvest, there were no reserves to dig into. Within the geographic center of the Volga famine, more than two-thirds of the population died, with a quarter of the peasantry in Russia suffering from starvation as happened during Mao's Great Leap Forward, which was caused in large part by communist economic logic, and partly by a Russian scientist who claimed to know far more than he actually did about crops. Cannibalism became the go-to method for survival. Sebastian tells us that people were storing corpses as food. One woman was caught with her child eating pieces of her dead husband. When police interviewed her, she said, We won't give him up. He's our own family, and no one has the right to take him away from us. Lenin's first solution to the famine was to ban the word starvation from all Russian papers. Upon serious pressure, he finally accepted U.S. economic aid from President Herbert Hoover, saving perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives. The U.S. safety net abandoned Russia, however, after it came out that Lenin was still selling portions of the Russian harvest in exchange for hard currency, another mistake that Mao would repeat later. Peasant revolts as well as won by Russian sailors emerged. Lenin dealt with both with his usual brutality. The repression of the sailors was particularly harsh, even by his standards. They had demanded access to food. Both sides refused to back down, and Trotsky's army was sent in to massacre the rebelling soldiers, one of whom recalls it being less of a battle and more of an inferno. Lenin understood what he was about, telling colleagues that the dictatorship means and he even told them to take notes of this once and for all before finishing explaining that the dictatorship means unrestrained power and the use of force, not of law. The rival Mensheviks were banned and exiled in 1921, which was a fate far less harsh than Stalin would have imposed as the days of mass purges were yet to come but clearly Lenin's actions set the stage for Stalin's excesses. The owners of factories known to Marx as the bourgeoisie received the harshest emotion in the new Russia. Bourgeoisie became a word that became synonymous with capitalistic excess. One particular useful elementary style vocabulary lesson is a word wall, exercise. In this activity, students draw an image of the vocabulary word in order to express meaning. While teaching the geography of Southeast Asia, I came across a new mental image regarding the way that socialists view the bourgeoisie. Indonesia, Kopi Luwak, widely regarded as the world's greatest coffee, a pound of which runs between 200 and 600 dollars. The coffee is unique because it is derived from the remains of a bean that has been digested by a civet cat. After excreting the bean, local Indonesian workers harvest the remains and sell it to the richest people on the planet. The image of a Hollywood celebrity sitting on their deck while drinking a cup of cat poop coffee is the image that I have when I imagine Lenin's wealthy opponents. In order to wield unrestrained power, one has to rid themselves of all rivals. Lenin, an atheist, neutered religion by separating the church from the state, taking away all state funding which the church had previously been reliant upon, banning the faith-based teaching in state schools, and recognizing civil marriages for the first time. Although everything would eventually be nationalized, Lenin seized the church's land and property as a dry run for the rest of the economy. Wanting to go back to the well, he launched propaganda attacks against the church, blaming it for hoarding resources while the Russian people starved. He excluded the fact that they were starving because of his policies. The Cheka began to loot churches, including the taking of anything coated in gold, which could be melted down and sold on the international markets. Sebastian reminds us that over the next 15 years, 97% of the Soviet Union's churches, synagogues, and mosques closed down. Within two years of Lenin's edict, more than 30 bishops and 1,200 priests had been killed, and thousands more jailed for their beliefs. Those who remained religious probably felt that God was striking back on their behalf in 1921 when Lenin began to show clear signs of illness, including blacking out during work, wheezing, and appearing utterly exhausted. German experts were consulted and came to the conclusion that the lead casing of the bullets that remained in his body might be the cause of the problem. The Russian doctors disagreed, but took one of the two bullets out anyways, just in case. Lennon recuperated by taking multiple vacations, but his strength continued to erode away, despite the fact that he was merely in his early 50s. He had just enough strength left for one more major policy shift replacing his own failing war-communism economic model for what he termed the new economic policy. What was new was really old, though, as this shift reinstated elements of capitalism back to the Soviet economy. Rather than requisitioning grain by bayonet, farmers would have to pay a tax in grain. They were then free to sell any excess product that they managed to grow. Just like that, the famine ended. Workers were allowed to employ laborers again, and those laborers began to get paid in coin rather than in-kind services. Although no one came, Lenin even opened up the economy to foreign investment opportunities by capitalists. While there were protests by hardline communists, Lenin and his advisors had decided to make economic concessions now, in order to avoid having to make political ones later. On May 26, 1922, Vladimir Lenin had his first recorded stroke. It temporarily paralyzed him along his right side and impeded his speech. He told Nadia that this was the warning bell, and he turned out to be right. He wouldn't be properly diagnosed until after his death, but Lenin suffered from advanced acute arterial sclerosis. In layman's term, this impossible-to-pronounce word meant that the arteries that serviced his brain were hardening, and thus preventing blood flow from reaching the depths of his oversized cranium. His case was so severe that upon his death it was said that one couldn't fit a hair through Lenin's arteries, and that they were so hardened that they made the same sound that concrete makes when hit by metal. Lennon's father had died right around the same age from the same illness. It was genetic and each of his siblings also suffered at their end. It was at this moment that he had the most difficult conversation that one can have with a loved one, asking Nadia to give him poison when the time truly came, in order to prevent his suffering. She tentatively agreed, but after a series of strokes over the next year, she couldn't bring herself to administer the drugs. Seeing her suffer with the decision, Lenin suggested to her that she turn to Stalin, the future man of steel a steady man devoid of any sentimentality. But like a cat, Joseph Stalin turned out to be far more cunning than given credit for. He was much more of a planner and a thinker than brutish thug. He arrived on May 30th instructed to carry out the deed and administer the life-ending drugs. He held the poison in his hand, walked into Lenin's room and proceeded to have a private conversation with Vladimir for five minutes. Nothing is known about what transpired between the two men during those five minutes, but Stalin walked out of the room with the cyanide tablets still intact. Lenin wrote letters begging that Stalin keep his promise and administer the drugs that would end his life, But Stalin continued to refuse, telling the Soviet bureaucrats that it wasn't time to bid their comrade adieu. From this point on, Stalin became in charge of Lenin's care. And from this moment, the world saw and heard very little from their revolutionary leader. The bits that they received were always positive and suggested a recovery was right around the corner. But these were all lies told by a talented propagandist. Stalin even photoshopped pictures of the two of them together, gradually positioning the public to believe that he was Lenin's natural successor. And when Trotsky missed the state funeral, because Stalin had purposefully misled him on the time and location, It became clear to all that Stalin was the man destined to continue Lenin's revolution. The end came on January 21st, 1924, after another series of strokes that left him unable to walk without assistance, as well as rendering him unable to speak. The last ten months of his life on earth were said to be nearly unbearable. During the final two weeks of his life, however, he tried to rectify his biggest mistake. Although he knew that the bureaucracy had grown accustomed to excess, which in turn led to their rampant corruption, Lenin had chosen to do nothing about it. Fearful of being the guy that stopped the party when so many were enjoying it, He feared his own revolutionary partners too much to rein them in. He had hoped to inspire them by his example, but had clearly failed. At the end of his life, he believed he had an obligation to fix some of it. He dictated what is known as Lenin's Last Testament, a series of somewhat incoherent letters which warn about the dangers of Stalin-led rule suggesting to the party to eliminate him as soon as possible. Although the testament doesn't glorify Trotsky, it suggests that he would be Lenin's choice as successor. Unfortunately for Lenin and the world, all of the nurses that Lenin dictated his will to worked for Stalin. At this point, nearly everyone in the Politburo also worked for Stalin, Wood used his position as party secretary to strategically promote his lackeys while simultaneously demoting his enemies. Thus, the Politburo, in a closed door session, ordered the suppression of Lenin's testament and anointed Joseph Stalin as the next leader of the USSR. Nadia made sure to notify the party that Lenin wished to have no fuss regarding his death. Although a state funeral was expected, Lenin wished to be buried next to his mother and sister in Petrograd. Stalin altered the plans quite significantly, ordering the body to be preserved for all time so that it could be on permanent display in Red Square. Nadia tried one last time to fulfill her love's wishes by writing in Pravada, that she, quote, had a great request to make. Do not let your grief for Ilyich spend him in an outward veneration of his person. Do not build monuments and memorials to him, palaces in his name. Do not organize splendid celebrations in his memory. In his life, he attached little importance to these things. Such things oppressed him. He found them trying. Remember how much poverty and disorder we still have in our country. If you want to honor the name of Vladimir Ilyich, build daycare centers, kindergartens, homes, schools, and most importantly, fulfill his legacy. Four weeks after she finished writing her opt-ed, the Politburo created the Commission of Immortalization. Their first project was to entrench forever the Lenin cult. I would say that Lenin must have rolled around in his grave when he heard about the commission of immortalization's task, but he didn't, and we know that because he remains stuck in a glass jar that is annually viewed by millions of onlookers in Red Square. A part of Lenin knew that something like this could happen. The opening passage of his work, The State and Revolution, includes the worry that, quote, During the lifetimes of great revolutionaries, the oppressive classes constantly hound them and treated them with the most furious hatred, the most unscrupulous campaigns of lies and slander. After their deaths, attempts are made to convert them into harmless icons, as it were to canonize them and surround their names with a certain halo, with the object of duping the masses while at the same time emasculating and blunting the real essence of their revolutionary teachings, reducing them to vulgarity. Thankfully, we are far enough removed to look at Lenin's life with a historian's gaze. While subsequent leaders of the USSR were worse, they were enabled by the actions and policies of Vladimir Lenin and the state that he built wholly on the acceptance of violence. Lenin may not have the body count of a Hitler or Mao, but he provided the architecture for Stalin, Khrushchev, and others. Those groups encouraged Maoist uprisings throughout the world, plunging the globe into a Cold War that nearly ended human existence. In Lenin's eyes, all of it was worth it, because all of the violence and pain that he caused was for the revolution. A revolution that he was continually assured was right around the corner for the rest of the world. A revolution that we know never came.